0: This episode is supported by Panacea Financial, digital banking built for doctors by doctors. At Panacea Financial, you can have your own free personal banker and a support team that works around the clock just like you do. Learn about their Match Day giveaway. Panacea is giving out five awards of $500 to medical students entering the 2021 match. Visit panaceafinancial.com forward slash matchday for more details Paul, we're back. We just did the clap. We've done better. Stuart didn't even have time to interrupt me. He looks dumbfounded.
1: Well, yeah, just the the clap. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) This is the Curbsiders. I'm Matt Watto here with my two co-hosts, Paul Williams and Stuart Brigham. Hi, how you doing? Thanks. Thanks, Stuart. That's like (laughs) a minute late. And a special guest host who you all probably know by now. A reminder that this and most of our episodes are available for CME credit through our partnership with VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org, and that is free, in case you're keeping track of that. So Paul, can you tell the audience, uh, what is it that we do on this show, and then uh, introduce our our guest, our mystery guest?
2: (laughs) All you have to do is look at the episode title um, to solve Uh, the mystery. People forget to do that. (laughs) We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, tonight, it's it's a bridge too far to say that we are the experts, but what we're hoping to do is actually distill down the wizard, the, the wizard. You shall not pass. What we're hoping to do is distill down the wisdom of prior experts into a condensed, beautiful episode, just a, a shiny pearl of knowledge for you to then take home uh, and use in your own practice. And this was all... Put together by the amazing dr carolyn chan who's the mysterious aforementioned guest so i'll let carolyn tell us about what she's put together
0: paul i I have to interrupt and say that uh, carolyn is an addiction medicine fellow at yale university right now so she is building her expertise in this topic uh much of it on air on the show or at least (laughs) that's where it started not much of it on air on the show at this point now she's i'm sort of spending most of her days doing this so carolyn she's
2: miles ahead of us just looking in the rearview mirror (laughs) watching us as we sort of fade into the background
3: (laughs) No, one of the things I love about this show is that we do such a great good job just talking about and covering topics of substance use disorders. And I I sort of thought maybe I should just stay a mystery guest, like never reveal myself (laughs) and just see if we can get learners and listeners to figure out who I I am. And today we have an absolutely packed episode where we're really going to review some of our favorite pearls regarding alcohol use. We're going to touch on how do we manage withdrawal as well as the basic medications we can use for alcohol use disorder, and we're going to follow it up by talking about opioid use disorder, ways and frameworks to think about how we manage chronic opioids along with treatment of opioid use disorder.
1: And before we get started, Carolyn, I've got a question for you. What did the mechanic who was addicted to brakes say to his doctor?
3: Oh, I, I feel like this should be I, obvious. I yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> just said, can't stop.
1: No, he said, it's okay. I can stop anytime.
2: Uh, that's better. I have to admit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn, why don't you start us off with a
0: case prompt that, uh, to get the conversation going?
3: Yeah, today we have Mr. Brandywine. He is a 68-year-old male who has a history of spinal stenosis and alcohol use disorder who has had one prior hospital admission for alcohol withdrawal. Currently, he's coming to you today because he's drinking about one handle of vodka a day, and he's presenting to your clinic looking for assistance for treatment for his alcohol use disorder. His last drink was about 12 hours ago, and he comes to you, and he's he's really nervous about um his alcohol withdrawal. So my first question to everybody is, is how do you guys approach the management of alcohol withdrawal?
1: Can uh, I ask what a handle is first? <laughs>
2: oh, thank you. Yeah, I have the same question.
0: <laughs> uh, taking, taking me back to my college days, the, the, I, I believe it is the, it's the, the bottle that's big enough that it has a handle on it. It's usually a bottle of liquor. Oh, I think it's uh, So it's pretty substantial. I think it's like 1.5 liters. So it's like twice the normal bottle size. Gotcha. Yeah.
3: 1.75. Okay. And I did have to Google that though. To 1. confirm 7. the amount 5. of okay. the liters because I never remember either.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Carolyn, maybe you'll have some more experience than us in this, but Paul, we were talking about this before. Is your number greater than mine? Uh, my number is zero for the number of patients I've treated outpatient for alcohol withdrawal. What's your number?
2: It is It is also zero.
0: Okay. Yeah, most of these patients I was... my Most of my tr- experience with alcohol withdrawal, which is quite a bit, is treating them in the hospital.
1: I, I've had about between five and ten that I've done outpatient, but okay. they weren't drinking one handle of vodka a day. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of them were veterans who were drinking anywhere from like six to 12 beers per day and they wanted to cut back and they had very minimal symptoms certainly see way less than 10 but um
0: did you you just treat them with it like you just were like just drink one less beer per day until you're
1: (laughs) so 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 no it it really kind of depended on what their motivation was for quitting so if their motivation was hey i want to go cold turkey then that kind of changed what the discussion at least for for me looked like um, and looking at the different symptoms that they had with alcohol withdrawal before to address the, the symptomatology in addition to, to addressing the underlying drive to drink, whatever that was. And whenever I have a patient who uh, tells me that they want to quit drinking in the clinic, I, I, I probably had have had a lot more than 10. I'm probably underestimating here. But uh, the first thing that we do, because I've got a list that I go through, the first thing that we do is try to find a support group before they leave. Uh, something like Alcoholics Anonymous. We actually call them together. And on the phone together, and I introduce myself as their physician, and I have them introduce themselves too. And then I leave the examination room, and I let them talk together for about 10-15 minutes while I go see the next patient. And then afterwards, have them set up a meeting, either like uh, the next appointment, sometimes someone from AA comes with them, and we sit down together. Or if their spouse is their support network, then I have their spouse come and we sit down together and have like a discussion about it, like what the pros and cons are to address the underlying source for drinking, things like that. I have used a, compers- a compensate not an insignificant amount of times for these patients, but um, it really depends on what their risk is for withdrawal and what exactly that we're treating at that time. I do use a lot of gabapentin, though.
0: Okay. So let
2: me take a step back, because I, I, I think that's great. I, I feel like I have Less issue connecting people to resources, though certainly it sounds like you spend right. a lot of time and certainly sort of you guys getting support structures, and that's terrific. I think for me the concern is more about the potential lethality, right? Yes. <laughs> like, so I don't want right. to inadvertently kill my patient by telling them, oh yeah, no, you should probably stop today. Though I, it sounds like I mean that's the overwhelming minority of people that had that get into trouble with that. Yeah. So I guess the question before us is who is safe to manage in the outside in the outpatient setting, and is there how do we figure that out? And I might actually toss that to Carolyn, who probably has more experience with this than I do.
3: Yeah, I think especially because of COVID, I've been not wanting to send patients to the emergency department. I've been having my patients go to the emergency department, not experience withdrawal symptoms, and then get discharged home. So making it more difficult to decide how do we manage Mm. this? Because I think sending someone to the ED now is not a zero harms game. So I think if somebody is high risk, so someone's had seizures, been in the ICU, has had complicated withdrawal, DTs, those are patients I'm absolutely going to send to the hospital or a detox. There's no way I'm going to feel comfortable managing that yeah. in that patient setting just because they're high risk. But for other patients, you know, who um, have a relatively stable home environment, someone who's going to be around to help them out, hasn't experienced any of these complications, mm-hmm. maybe has been admitted, but their was don't get much higher than moderate, you know, you know, 10 to 15. Um, I will do it outpatient. I like to do it on a Monday or Tuesday because mm. sending someone home on Friday always makes me nervous and not knowing if they'll have a backup. And my go-to regimen is it's pretty simple for di- I use diazepam and I do like four, three, two, one. So I send people home mm. with 10 milligrams of diazepam. I tell them for the first day they can take up to four doses. So about every, you know six hours. then the next day, up to three doses. so every eight hours, then two, every 12, and then one. And my patients seem to do pretty well with it. I send them with an extra tab just in case. And um, I've had a decent amount of success with it.
0: And Dr. Suzuki, I think his cutoff for SIWA was SIWA less than 10. And he said, and but many of the same things. He didn't want anyone to have like a super high alcohol level when mm-hmm. he's seeing them. Like, But he, he basically said that, uh, that gabapentin is an option and uh, the dose typical dose is like eighteen hundred to twenty four hundred milligrams per day. Continue that for several days, and then taper the patient off of it. Personally, I've never done that, and uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how comfortable I would feel doing that. Is is that something you're seeing done, Carolyn?
3: I have not done it myself, though I they, though I have have colleagues who've done it who are who are probably lower risk, you know, um, in terms of withdrawal and are really you know, stopping alcohol for the first time, and, and it, our less. It also,
1: it also seems like a fairly high dosage to start at, too.
3: So I do, we do th- like 300 every six hours to see if they, they titrate it, and again, sort of taper down from there with extra doses, um, or at least that's what I've heard colleagues do. ASAM actually has these really great, like, pocket guidelines for dosing of alcohol use, um, alcohol withdrawal that are helpful, which we'll make sure to, like, link in the show notes. But I think they're pretty user friendly seventy four type pages, so
0: to re- to recap, Stuart was giving a lot of advice about more of like the connecting to resources. A is a maintenance medication not for de- that will not help you during the detox period. Uh, and then Carolyn's regimen is diazepam, ten milligrams. Uh, and again, this is all expert opinion. I don't think there's a lot of like strong guidance on what we're doing here, but we'll we'll check out those resources you showed us. So Carolyn, it was ten milligrams, four, three, two, one, basically the number of tabs they'd be taking over successive days, and and you're really trying to select a low risk population, ideally someone with some resources at home. It sounds like
3: exactly, and then the beauty of it is if you do it during the week, you know, and something goes awry, you know, your office is open. Yeah, I make sure people know that they go to the ER if they're they aren't feeling right they're feeling worse
0: this is someone that you want to have your office on speed dial and that you're kind of waiting for that that call okay I I think I could get on board with that I that that might be something I think it was the right patient and if I had uh, some familiarity with them I might be likely to try something like this either the gabapentin or the diazepam just depending on on the patient um And uh, their comorbidities, like if they were on high dose opioids, I probably wouldn't be doing the diazepam taper. (laughs) Okay, let's
3: say say Mr. Brandywine, though, we decide he's too high risk. Uh So I decided that I want to admit him to the hospital because on my history, he's clearly saying that he has a history of seizures related to alcohol withdrawal. So uh, how would you guys actually decide to treat his alcohol withdrawal in the hospital? Like, how would you decide whether you want to do, like, a symptom-triggered yeah. fixed benzotaper, maybe even phenobarb?
1: So so for me, if they have a history of seizures, I usually put them on scheduled benzodiazepines with PRN. And I try to use the same benzodiazepine. I, my my favorite is actually diazepam as well because of the pharmacokinetics. But, I mean, I've seen lorazepam, and I don't, you know, when they're admitted by night float and they're, they're on lorazepam, I don't like scream at them, but certainly would would prefer diazepam Um, and then taper down from there. And then I also taper down the fixed dose as well. So it's kind of a little bit of both. That's the way that I approach it, though.
0: It's interesting that I want you to expand on the diazepam pharmacology. I just wanted to point out. So it
1: depends on if it's IV or PO. Yeah. So so IV diazepam has about the same half-life as lorazepam, but the PO has a slightly longer half-life than the PO lorazepam. And I'd have to look at the actual lipophilicity. My understanding is that diazepam is also a little bit more lipophilic than lorazepam. So it sticks around longer, even though it's half-life. So it's, uh, even beyond it's half-life. So yeah. it helps for like uh, prolonged symptoms as more of like a controlled medication. But what I don't like to do... I don't like to mix different benzodiazepines because they have different pharmacokinetics at the receptor itself. So one is going to be slightly more affinity, has slightly more affinity than the other. So they're always going to work as like partial agonists or antagonists to one another. And I don't know which is which when it comes to like a lorazepam and diazepam. So it doesn't make sense to do like and lorazepam with diazepam.
0: I remember Dr. Suzuki said that he, he prefers diazepam because it has a quick onset. <clears throat> and like you said, it has, a, a, by orally at least, it has a little bit of a longer half-life. Mm-hmm. Though I think one of the tiebreakers was if someone has liver dysfunction, then there's right. a couple of different agents, uh, lorazepam being one of the ones that is not metabolized by the liver. Carolyn, right. how do you think about the fixed dose versus versus the uh, symptom-triggered? Symptom-triggered being like the CWA protocol, probably what most people are used to.
3: Along the same lines as Stuart, if someone has had, you know, someone comes in and they end up in the ICU nearly every time for alcohol withdrawal, I'm just going to start them on a fixed taper if I think they're at high risk of developing a complicated withdrawal. Otherwise, I think symptom is preferred for most individuals just because it prevents over medication. And, you know, you can always adjust course, you know, early on if, if you do symptom triggered, their COs are still going up and you feel like you're getting behind, you can always just switch to a fixed plus the symptoms, plus symptom triggered on top.
1: The only times I've had a negative outcome when it, with an alcohol or benzo withdrawal patients, patient is when I didn't use a fixed benzo dosage, when I just used symptom-triggered dosing. Now, granted, they may be overly sedated if you put them on a fixed dose, but at least from my experience, a very limited seems to be a safer option for these patients.
0: Yeah, I, I think Dr. Suzuki, one thing that he was mentioning is that he, he does see that some patients, sometimes you can't tell if they're delirious from the mm-hmm. withdrawal or if it's the benzotoxicity. Carolyn, do you have any tricks for, for avoiding that other than symptom driven? I,
3: I I don't really know. I, it just seems like a hard thing mm. to figure out. It is hard. I think time you know, time and onset during the course looking at their CWAS, I feel like it's pulling a lot of information together. And then making sure that before you stop and pull back that they're really out of that withdrawal right. period. I think Dr. Suzuki made a good point too that like the first two days of withdrawal are really the golden period that we really mm. want to like try and get symptoms managed as well as we can then. Um, and it will help us minimize complications further down the line.
0: Yes, that was like one of those things that st- that has like stuck in my head. And I, I like to point that out to You know, whenever I'm working on this, on the service and we have somebody admitted with alcohol withdrawal, I'm like, okay, these first 48 hours, this is really crucial. It's going to dictate how the course goes. So we want to keep a close eye on this person, make sure we don't get behind. Paul, you looked like you were going to say something.
2: No, I just, I I remember back in the days of early residency when we were, you know, therapeutic leeches and tree finding and, you know, adjusting (laughs) humors and stuff that we were using, like, a PRN lorazepam just kind of per nursing discretion. Like, it was just, like, you know, a baby dose of lorazepam every four hours, PRN. Like, it was not protocolized in any way, shape, or form. And then you'd never catch up and bad things would happen. And then it's just – so I I think that my bigger takeaway from all this is to have something protocolized, whether it's sort of a fixed dose or it is a CWR protocol, but don't just try to wing it because that will not go well for you.
1: I think
0: we should move – and, and I think for time, we should move on to a little bit of the maintenance treatment, which uh, we had hinted at a little bit earlier. Let's say we get this guy through the course. Actually, he got a fixed dose of phenobarbital because we thought uh, they thought he was high risk. And uh, he did just fine. It, it self-tapers. You can listen to the episode 212 with Dr. Suzuki if you want to hear more about that. And uh, now Mr. Brandywine is Carolyn. We're going to discharge him. And uh, one of the things that struck me about this, the maintenance medication is that, that uh, I think it was our our guest, when we were talking more of the outpatient alcohol use disorder, she said she recommends you start it inpatient because a lot of the pr- times the primary doctor will not start it, but they will continue it, which I thought was great advice.
1: Yeah. Can I ask a, que- a question first? Sure. What What percentage of patients would you say who have been admitted for alcohol withdrawal should be started on a long term treatment option at discharge Carolyn
3: I'd say a hundred percent if they're interested and that's their motivation <laughs> right. um, I think that if someone's not interested or it doesn't feel like a good fit i don't think every patient i don't think we force this upon patients you know right. um, but I do think it's under prescribed and it could benefit many of our patients especially right. since um, addiction medicine in the hospital at such a reachable moment like we talked about with Dimer, Dr. Weimer to to actually engage patients in treatment for their substance use.
1: So the reason why I ask is because it's it's actually one of the quality metrics for your TJC that at discharge you have to offer it to them if they've been admitted for alcohol withdrawal. It's a requirement actually and that's one of the metric uh, measures that hospitals are measured against. If you don't document that it was offered, it actually counts against your 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 metrics. And um, for those patients who are interested who are not prescribed at discharge, that's a huge fail. But um, a lot of people don't realize it's actually a requirement. So Carolyn,
0: if, if someone has never prescribed naltrexone uh, for a patient before and they're going to be discharging somebody or a campersate, uh, tell us what's your approach and what would that sound like if you were about to start Mr. Brandywine on naltrexone? Like what do you have to look out for bef- and what would you tell them what side effects or anything?
3: yeah i want to say first of all these medications are really easy to prescribe so don't be worried don't be afraid about it you can always call your local addiction consult service if you aren't sure and maybe even just turn it into a curbside consult (laughs) and so uh, i think generally for most of our patients we recommend naltrexone as first line therapy it's really important to know when is naltrexone contraindicated So it is contraindicated in patients who are using opioids because it is an opioid antagonist. Patients who I foresee having surgery, you know, in the next week or two. Patients who have some of those factors should not be started on it. And it should be used cautiously in patients with decompensated liver or acute liver disease because there there are some small studies suggesting that it could cause hepatotoxicity. Though in general, mild LT elevations are not a contraindication, and generally they often improve because an individual has cut back on their alcohol use. Mm. The starting dose I use is 50 milligrams, and the most common side of extra, just like a little stomach ache, a little bit of nausea but generally it's pretty well tolerated and you can always just cut it in half for a couple days and then have a patient increase. And it's great. Like the number needed to treat for naltrexone to prevent someone to return from heavy drinking is 12. Like these meds are pretty effective. I think it's important to know too, if a patient comes in and is on naltrexone, right? And they're still presenting and saying they're having alcohol use. You don't need a complete abstinence to continue these medications, right? Cutting back, that is a successful metric and an outcome for these patients.
0: Yeah, yeah. That, that was part of what blew my mind during our journey into substance use disorder, which is something I had no treatment. I had no real education on it in medical school, at least not that I remember. But uh, the fact that abstinence was just all that was ever- like in my view, when when, whenever substance use was talked about, alcohol, opioids, anything, it was always like abstinence, abstinence, abstinence. And then when you actually meet patients who have it, it's not always in the cards for them to become totally abstinence. And that's where this like harm reduction, just like getting them to cut back is a, it's a small win, but it's, it's a win. And, uh, you just work with them. And eventually if they get to the point where they can be abstinence, that's great. But, uh, these any any tools you can give them to cut back, I think, is a win.
1: Absolutely.
2: Let me ask about one of the other agents. So uh, you, you mentioned naltrexone. I think acamprosate is the other one that is, is commonly used. Disulfiram. I think there's a very small sliver that might be that might be appropriate for it. for the acamprosate. I wonder if you couldn't talk us through who that's best for. And then also, I, I feel like I'd heard there there's a recommend usually a period of abstinence before starting it. And I wonder if if I'm misunderstanding that, or if that's correct or not. So if you could sort of talk us through. Who gets a and how you prescribe it for them, that would be really helpful for me.
3: Yeah, I think everybody else gets a generally. <laughs> not uncommonly, Perfect. right? Check. So it sort of has the benefits of it's not contraindicated for the same reasons that naltrexone are, right? You know, you can use it in people who have hepatic dysfunction and severe liver disease. Uh, You can use it in people who are on opioids. It is renally dosed. I always have to like double check and make sure that someone's creatinine clearance is okay and um, you can use it. It is a high pill burden. It's like 666 milligrams three times a day. So two pills, TID, those sort of like expert opinion. My patients are not taking this medication necessarily six pills a day, but I do think that anecdotally some are describing benefit from it. Um, in regards to, again, it's like effectiveness, the number needed to prevent number needed to treat to prevent return to any drinking is 12. So pretty effective. And then Paul, you alluded to the there are comments about how we often ask patients to be abstinent before we start these medications for a couple days. And that really is because that's how the studies were done. So there was a period of abstinence and that they started the medications. They sort of completed detox and had a certain number of days, which I can't recall off the top of my head. So oftentimes, you know, and it, kind again, of, this is just like how they studied it, right? I think sure, in the definitely. real world, you know, we're f- more flexible. Generally, I will just start it at discharge for a patient and not start it in the hospital per se. But if somebody is nervous about it and wants to try it, you know, I say go ahead of anything that will help the patient sort of feel comfortable trying some of these medications.
0: Our sponsor today is Panacea Financial, the financial remedy for doctors created by doctors. With nationwide digital banking, Panacea Financial provides physicians and medical students with free checking, a personal banker, around-the-clock customer support, and loans designed with you in mind. Instead of running up credit card debt, try their PRN personal loan that is designed to give you a better way to cover expenses such as relocation, board exams, or even home renovations. Additionally, physicians-in-training can have a period of no or reduced payments on their PRN personal loan. Panacea is also excited to announce their Match Day Giveaway. $500 will be awarded to five medical students entering the match in 2021. Entry is free and students can enter the giveaway on their website until March 31, 2021. Winners will be selected randomly on April 1, 2021. No purchase is necessary for entry, so go to panaceafinancial.com forward slash matchday. That's panaceafinancial.com forward slash matchday to learn more. Panacea Financial, a division of Sonobank, member FDIC.
1: Hey, curbsiders. Do you wish there was a curbsiders podcast, but for pediatrics? Well, you're in luck. Come check us out at the Cribsiders Pediatric Podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite player. The Cribsiders brings you the same clinical pearls and expert interviews, maybe the occasional pun, uh, but throwing in a weight-based dose and a fun. Check out our episodes on bronchiolitis, seizure, UTIs, and much more at (laughs) www.thecribsiders.com.
0: Well, I think we need to move on to talking about opioid use disorder. Carolyn, do you want to tell us about our, our second case prompt here?
3: Yeah, we have Mr. Laudot. He's a 56-year-old man who has spinal stenosis who's currently on chronic opioid therapy. And his doctor was prescribing his pain management regimen, and he recently retired, and he's coming to your office today uh, for you to establish as his new primary care doctor. Currently, he is taking oxycontin 20 milligrams twice a day and oxycodone 15 up to four times a day as needed. He does tell you that he sometimes takes extra doses of his pain medications. Um, And at this time, he actually doesn't feel like any of his opioids are adequately controlling his pain and actually is coming to you to see if you can increase his dose. My first question to you guys is: Is how would you approach this this patient who's establishing with you? I feel like this is a common scenario um, where patients on opioids and you are you are inheriting them for you know X, Y, and Z reason.
0: Yeah, I think Paul, you should you should take this one.
2: Sure, I, I can give it a go, and then you can you can critique after I'm done. But I, I feel like I don't know since I I started dealing more with opioid use disorder and actually prescribing View fairly frequently, I've become much more militant about this. I, I don't know about you all, but the story that I hear over and over again is uh, I was prescribed higher and higher doses of pain medication for my chronic whatever, and then my doctor got nervous and cut me off, and then I, I had to get something somewhere, and, and now here I am. So I, I've become less excited about sort of decreasing chronic opioid use without consent or a, a patient conversation, and I'm much more likely now to continue a, a medication regimen while we kind of figure out what our goals are and how to get them there. So for for me and this particular patient, um, obviously this theoretical patient, but I, I would probably actually continue things, then have a long and measured conversation about where I hope to go from here, where the patient hopes to deal with this and sort of what our mutual goals are and how to best address those things. I know this is all kind of vague, nice nellyisms, but I think I would not immediately cut off or refuse this patient care for their chronic pain. I would probably uh, discuss where to go from here and how we can get the patient to a safe and effective place. Uh,
0: one thing that I think is just so important that was not being done probably from the 90, mid-90s to early 2000s, whenever this opioid craze started was you have to have an exit strategy if you're gonna start someone on opioids. You have to have the conversation up front, like so that the patient respects the medication, the risks of the medication. I, I think our guests when we were talking about chronic pain, they said, you tell patients that there is a non-insignificant risk of opioid use disorder if they do this. There's osteoporosis, there's um hypogonadism is a is another side effect. And you know, some of that will turn patients off when they when they hear the word that they might be, when they hear that they might become like dependent on the substance, they're just like, some patients will just say, no, I don't want that. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. So have an exit strategy. And then, yeah, there's, I think this is a very common scenario. Carolyn, what do you, for patient, for this case, I mean, it seems to me a red flag that the patient's taking extra doses. So how, how would you assess this? And because they're asking for increased medication and probably the gut reaction is like, then should we should we taper them off
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's a I feel like these cases, they sound so simple, and yet they're so complicated. They're so complicated. We did four, we basically did four episodes on this, guys. Number (laughs) 156 with Dr. Azari and Dr. Cushman, and then number 73 and number 74 with Dr. Cortez and Dr. Manhopra. So it seems simple, um, but I think on first meeting, this patient building rapport is really important and getting to understand them, their history, their story of pain. And, you know, depending on the situation, if there are really no adverse harms or effects that I can see... sort of probably go with what Paul is saying. You know, let's continue it. Let's get to know each other. Let's see what the long-term goals are. But I think overall, I'm thinking in my head in terms of like three really big buckets, which is you know, maintaining long-term opioid treatments versus tapering down or switching to buprenorphine really as as the three options. And if someone's pain is poorly controlled, you know, they could have a component of opioid-induced hyperalgesia where you start to taper and they actually start to feel better. And we discussed this too with, with Dr. Azari. And I, I have anecdotally, you know, I mean, I have seen that in practice. Yeah.
0: The taper, there was, I think we mentioned this on a show before, there was a, I think it was on Fresh Air, Terry Gross had on. I think he was a journalist of some sort who had been in a motorcycle accident, needed a surgery, and then became opioid dependent, and the surgeon just like abruptly cut him off and he went through horrible withdrawals. Then he went down the rabbit hole of trying to find out about this and realizing that doctors don't know what they're doing. They know how to prescribe opioids. They don't know how to taper them. So Carolyn, what's the recommended strategy for someone like this guy? He's been on opioids for years. So how long might it take to taper him if he's taking what, what is this guy on a day? Is it like 100, uh, 100 of oxycodone, equi- oh, something so around nice. there?
1: Yes, 100 total, yeah.
0: Which yeah. in morphine is like a lot. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it is.
3: We'll go with that. It's a lot. So first, step number one, calculate the total MME. That's very helpful. And then, you know, you do it slowly, taper slowly, go taper down 2 to 10% um, of the total MME per month. Sometimes you can do it a little bit faster per week, but if someone's been on opioids for years, generally the taper is very slow, very patient-centered, patient-driven. Sometimes you even slow it out and extend it sort of in the middle and towards the end.
0: Have you done this in the hospital? Because I've noticed sometimes I'll, I'll get a patient that comes out of intensive care. They've been here for a month. They're still on opioids and they're like using a lot of the doses. And, and then I'm like, oh my gosh, this person's been here for three weeks or four weeks and they've been on continuous opioids. Now I'm going to have to send them out with a taper. It's just kind of a mess that I would prefer not to get myself into, but it happens from time to time. Are you seeing that too, Carolyn? I saw Paul.
3: Oh yes. It's, it's a mess. And I send them to me and the, and the outpatient. <laughs> right. right. And then I'm calling like, you know, short-term rehabs and doing all of these care coordination things. They're, it's, they're challenging situations for sure.
2: Well, I guess it goes, like Dr. Curtis wrote a, a really beautiful piece, I think with some other authors about like the the actual ethics behind non-consensual tapering of chronic opioids, which mm-hmm. is uh, we can link to it in the show notes it's it's really beautifully written but i, I you you raised the both of you raised the great point like I think it's also really important to address why you're tapering with the patient like you, we shouldn't be doing it just because the CDC says to do it or because you just don't like the the dose because the number seems weird to you like that's probably not a sufficient reason in and of itself, but if they're I feel like oftentimes these patients end up on chronic opioids for things that chronic opioids aren't indicated for. So if you can, like, I'd like to actually get you to a treatment that's effective for you, that's a reasonable thing to do. Or I think this dose is unsafe and that's why we need to decrease it because there are behaviors that I'm concerned about. That's a reasonable thing to do. Or I'm worried about these side effects and on and on and on. But I think it's it has to be shared and you have to be explicit as to your reasons why. Because if you're doing it just because you're like, I just don't like it. Like, I don't know any patient who's going to buy into, <laughs> into that treatment plan if they feel like their pain is adequately managed on the dose that they have.
1: How about the fact that it's super easy to prescribe these, but not really super easy to give them anything else to get them off of it? We were talking about that during the pre-recording. I don't know how you want to talk about that with the buprenorphine.
0: Yeah, Stuart, that's a good question. And that is a good point. Uh, the Many of our guests have said to us, there's this super dangerous group of medications, opioids that have a lot of harm associated with them that anybody can prescribe pretty much. And then there's this medication that's fairly safe, buprenorphine, and very easy to use that you have to go through a training course and do all this, pay extra money in some cases to get, to get waived to do this. I guess recently in the news, we were all hoping this was going to go away, but it looks like that's not going to be the case, but it, it's just, there, there is, I think appropriately so a lot of people advocating for this doesn't make sense. Like we have this, you, you have, if you're going to prescribe a medicine that has this harm associated with it then you need to be able to treat that harm. And buprenorphine is the most easily available medication to do that because most of us cannot prescribe methadone. Uh, we're not working at methadone clinics.
1: Right. And Carolyn, you had an interesting point that you that you made about this, that one of the concerns behind the whole X-waiver process is uh, diverting buprenorphine to the community. What does the data show about communities that have a higher buprenorphine diversion rate
3: now you're gonna now i'm gonna have to pull up that paper decided in the show <laughs> notes exactly so um so we'll, we we may have to cut this but i believe there is a paper out there that supports that communities with rates of diversion of bu- buprenorphine actually have lower overdose rates because you know we want to keep buprenorphine out of the hands of opioid naive naive people. You know, we don't want like kids, teens, you know, to to be exposed and and develop opioid dependence. But the majority of the people are using it to prevent withdrawal and to self-medicate because they can access, you know, evidence-based treatment. I think that is what the vast majority, probably 99.9% of people are, you know, expert opinion are, are using these medications for.
0: Can we talk about the, oh, go ahead, Paul, then.
3: What, I, now,
2: this is one of those ill-formed thoughts, but there's that great vague statistic that I'm not going to be able to remember now about diverted antibiotics being misused far more commonly um, <laughs> than diverted... That's so like, easy to is, believe. Is, is, ...is used appropriately for the things that it's 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 used for the indication that it's made for, as opposed to the antibiotics are often diverted very commonly and are not used appropriately at all. So it's just, it's funny, it's sort of where our priorities... <laughs> I can't tell you how many times
0: about. someone goes, oh yeah, my brother-in-law or my sister had some antibiotics, oh. so I just took that...
2: I had an old bottle just in a drawer that I didn't finish last time, and I just started it as another personal. Four thing. Four
1: years ago.
0: <laughs> well, let's talk about I. So, okay, let's let's bring it to the taper. If this patient, and what was our patient's name here, uh, Mr. Lotot? Did I say his name right? Well,
3: yeah, long term. Yeah, I had an extra <laughs> O <row> for long term <laughs> opiate treatment. I, I don't know if anyone would pick it up.
0: Okay, okay, <laughs> I, I I figured there was something to it. I just it just was not clicking in my brain. Okay. So Mr. Long-Term Opioid Treatment, he actually says, you know what, this has never worked for my pain. At this point, you know, we, we get his, we get some buy-in where we're seeing him for a while. We taper him down a little bit. He says, you know, I I think I want to come off this, but I'm just worried, like, what am I going to do for my pain? And he's been on it for so long. So I guess one of the options you already mentioned is you could taper him two to 10% per month. Maybe you can even go down weekly depending on how long they're on it. But it let, it let's, if if we, we didn't calculate it exactly, but if he's on like 200 milligrams morphine per day, then that means we might go down by 20 milligrams per month. So that might take him 10 months to get off of it. And we might even have to go slower. That would be if we went at 10%. So we might even have to go slower. So this guy might, it might take a year or two to taper this, this patient, which is why this situation is such a mess. There's so many patients in this situation. Carolyn, have you cross-tapered over to buprenorphine as like their long-term controller and using it for both pain and just to satisfy their, the, the opioid use that they were on for so long?
3: Yeah, there's this wonderful opioid reassessment clinic, and this is a portion a portion of, of what they do for patients who are on long-term opioid therapy. And when we talk about switching, you know, it's nuanced. Um every patient's different and for patients who do opt to switch and try buprenorphine, we, we sort of present like two options to them. We could do sort of a standard induction where we stop all the opioids, you know, wait until they're in mild withdrawal and then start the buprenorphine. Um, or we can do a process called like microdosing where we give small, tiny amounts of buprenorphine over a period of a week. So a patient doesn't have to experience withdrawal because withdrawal is pretty unpleasant and it's, uh, it's, It's a tough buy-in and and something that probably isn't necessarily needed depending, you know, on what the situation is and patient preference. Okay.
0: Yeah, and the reason you can't give buprenorphine, and I I think we should go into talking about uh, buprenorphine initiation maybe for uh, a different situation, but buprenorphine has a super high affinity for the opioid receptor, right, the mu-opioid receptor. So even if someone's on a full agonist like hydromorphone, morphine, the buprenorphine will knock it off the receptors and they'll have a relative decrease in how much opioids are in their system or how much opioid ag- agonism they're feeling. Is that how you think about it? That's kind of how I think about the precipitated withdrawal from bup.
3: My co-fellow, I should say, he gave me this great analogy, um, Sean Cohen, if he's you, if listening. So he likes to use like the speeding car analogy. Mm-hmm. So he says, imagine, you know, you're on opioids and it's like a car that's racing down the highway at 100 miles per hour, right? So you have like full activation, full speed of all of your immune receptors. And then say all of a sudden somebody gives you buprenorphine, so which is a partial agonist with a high affinity. It's like you're slamming your brakes down. So you're going from 100 to 50 miles per hour. You're going to feel that. Oh, I you know, love You're going to feel great. that acute drop, and um, that's what happens if you have full opioids in your system. So mm. microdosing is the idea that I'm giving teeny tiny amounts. So they aren't going from 100 to 50. They're going slowly from like 100 to 95 to 90. So it's much more gradual, and most patients and individuals don't feel much at all of that deactivation and breaking process.
0: A situation that comes up a lot, I know we have a lot of hospitalists that listen to our show or, or if, even if we just have somebody that you're seeing as an outpatient and they want to start buprenorphine, They let's say they have an opioid use disorder and they now want to be switched over to buprenorphine for maintenance therapy, Carolyn, um, what, would we, what would that conversation sound like um, and how would, how would you instruct that patient? What do we need to do to, in order to get them on buprenorphine without too much discomfort?
3: Yeah. So I always make sure I offer my patients all three evidence-based medications. So methadone, buprenorphine, um, and naltrexone. Most patients have experience with a lot of these. And if a patient selects buprenorphine, uh, what I do is, is up in their, hosp- in the hospital, it's, it's relatively easy because I can monitor their symptoms and check their cow scores. So I'll monitor their cow scores. Um, If they don't have exposure or known exposure to fentanyl, I'll wait until their cow scores are greater than eight, and then I will give them four milligrams of buprenorphine. A couple hours later, if they're still feeling like they're in a little bit of withdrawal, I'll give them another four milligrams and see how they do and add adjuncts like clonidine, hydroxyzine, trazodone, things like that to help make it more comfortable until they feel like they're no longer experiencing withdrawal.
0: And for patients who have, uh, Paul, have you run into this? Because I, I have had one, two people, and I felt totally awful for this, where I thought that they were in enough withdrawal, we gave them the 4-milligram dose, or in one case, I gave them a 2-milligram dose, they were fine, then we gave them a 4-milligram dose a couple hours later, and then they precipitated. Have you have you had issues with that, and do you, are, you, are you skittish about it? I, I think there was some long-acting opioids involved in these cases I'm talking about.
2: I, it's. I've been very fortunate that I've not done that because I, I do live in terror of it, and I think I, I am very skittish about it, and tend to ask very explicitly about fentanyl, even though that's not a guarantee of anything. Just because sometimes you don't even know if it's present in sort of the substances you're using. So I, I've, I've not been. I've not personally um, sent anyone screaming to precipitate a withdrawal, but I'm still waiting for it to happen. I think that's just a matter of of being lucky and not wise.
0: Do you know, Carolyn, do you know what this is? The fentanyl, it's supposed to be super short acting, right? And it, it's supposed to theoretically be, heroin we think is a six to 12 hours time and fentanyl theoretically should be in the same time. Why does it seem that sometimes patients, they haven't used fentanyl for quite a long time, but then they still may precipitate. thats That was one of the cases that I talked about. The other one was a methadone where we thought we waited long enough and we didn't.
3: Yeah, your fentanyl is very short-acting, so it seems like paradoxical, right? Like, how could I be precipitating withdrawal with this short-acting opioid? But the key property to remember is that it's very lipophilic. So individuals who have a lot of fentanyl use, it's actually getting stored in their their adipocytes. And over time, it's actually slowly excreting back out into the plasma. So even though it has like a short plasma life, it it actually sort of mimics some of the properties of these long-acting opioids. So I've definitely precipitated withdrawal in patients who have had fentanyl exposure, and it's been making my buprenorphine inductions much more complicated. Yeah. So I like to present a menu of options to patients. Um, There is, I can cite this paper, there's a paper about this revised buprenorphine protocol where you actually give smaller and more frequent doses. So you wait, uh, number one, a cow score is greater than 13. So you give it a little bit more time for that fentanyl to sort of try and leak out of those adipocyte cells. And then you give two milligrams more frequently every 60 to 90 minutes probably up to you know eight to 16 milligrams on the first day um, possibly even higher depending on their their withdrawal scores um, and that will hopefully help minimize the chance mm-hmm. of precipitated withdrawal what's the setting like for
2: this initiation and sort of what what does follow-up look like because it seems that seems very labor intensive and requires a fair amount of supervision um, and i if i i feel like the typical office-based uh initiation you just don't see that, I guess, at least in in my limited experience.
3: When I do it in the office, I try and make it as simple as possible. If I know patients, some of my patients just know and, and the urine reflects that like there's fentanyl, I'll say, wait 48 hours from your last opioid use, that will roughly get most patients to cows of 13. And then I'm giving them four milligram films and telling them to cut and then take them every hour to hour and a half. Up till sixteen milligrams on the first day, or when, whenever they stop, you know, feeling like they're in withdrawal, and um, then we'll just call them in a couple of days. And, and if they
0: precipitate, do you have any instructions what to do? They just still just keep going with the every hour and a half, two hours.
3: That's what I encourage them to do. I think it really depends on the level of severity. Yeah, I found that using this method, most of my patients are saying, "Oh, I feel like I get a little bit of withdrawal. It is not untolerable. Mm -hmm. so I make sure they have all the adjuncts, clonidine, et cetera, to help get them through that, Yeah. and then the patients who really can't tolerate it, you know, sometimes they come back and we talk about microdosing, we talk about methadone, we present sort of a menu of options.
0: Right, so methadone, patients have to go to a clinic, there's some stigma associated with that, some patients want that, some patients, not the stigma, they want the methadone, some patients don't, and uh I think with the with the microdosing, uh, the the films come in this these foil packs, so you can cut it while it's still in the pack. And I actually talked to one, and this is total expert opinion. One uh, doc from a methadone clinic, and they told me they cut an eight milligram strip into eight strips, so essentially one milligram, and they're microdosing with one milligram strips instead of two. And uh, Doctor Weimer, uh, who's been on our show talking about addiction medicine, has a protocol. For buprenorphine micro microdosing that we can link to as well, so, like we said, going from a hundred down to fifty miles an hour, but you're doing it like gradually putting your foot on the brake rather than just slamming it all at once. I think we actually need to start to wrap up. Uh, I know we were hoping to uh go through some other stuff, but there's just so much to talk about. We have so many shows on addiction medicine. people should definitely check out the full episodes. This is just a more of a refresher chance for us to talk about it. Is there anything, any big things, Carolyn, that you think we're missing from this one?
3: I think that's it. You know, treating a patients with substance use disorders is, is very rewarding. So I encourage everybody um, to give it a try. Get your X waiver if you haven't until we know whatever the fate of that may, may be. Try starting medications for alcohol use disorder. It's really rewarding. Your patients need you. So give it a go.
0: And I know we said we were going to talk about benzo use disorder. Um, that was episode 20, 224. We talked about it with Dr. Weimer, so people can check that out. Uh, we spent a little bit of time talking about benzo tapers, but uh, for chronic benzos, they got to be very slow, just like with uh, chronic chronic opioids. That's That's what I'll say about it. And Paul, did you have a parting comment?
2: Yeah, we didn't get to it, but I, just a, a quick reminder that perioperative management on patients who are on buprenorphine or actually anything for opioid use disorder, just talk to the patient yeah. and, and also like talk, talk to the surgeon and have some sort of plan around the time of, of the operation. It's a, a nice reminder is that you don't necessarily have to stop the buprenorphine and you can sort of work around that, but that's, I mean, that's, we did a whole episode about that. So refer to that, but just don't forget to talk to the patients during times when you might actually need to change their medications around a little bit.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Paul, I think we should get to the outro.
2: This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Sedate, subdued. I like it. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
1: That's right, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice, change, knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Nora Toronto, Justin Burke, and Carolyn Chan, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbertelli on Twitter, Maddie Maddog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganoff on the website, and Chris the Man Manchu on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham, and good night.
0: And reminding the audience that they can claim free CME credit for this episode and many of our other episodes through VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto,
3: and I'm mystery guest Carolyn Chan. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right, Carolyn's here. Um, and we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music, and also to Karen Morgan of Not really for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you, and goodbye.